thank you very much, Abuna. Um, so this is the, um, the first talk of the um, hopefully five or six <laughs> talks about um, the, the Bible, or maybe less. We thought about, about um, a series about the Bible and um, uh, inspired by your meeting that you started um, um, from the basics. So I would like also to start the Bible also, uh, starting with the basics of the Bible. Eventually, what we're going to do, we're going to do, as Abuna said, uh, difficult passages of the Bible. So the, the questions that we would like everyone um, has in, in, in mind and would like to uh, answer them and talk about them. But in order also to come to this stage, I think it's better also to talk about uh, the basics of, of the Bible. So the topic tonight about how did the Bible come about? So this is the, the series. I'll start with one of the, um, the most important theologians of the time, uh, Metropolitan Callistus Ware of the Eastern Orthodox Church. He's a very well-known uh, theologian and, uh, and a holy man. He has um, a, a very famous article. If you just um, Google this article, it would be everywhere. It's called How to Read the Bible. And if you have um, an Orthodox study Bible with you, you will find this article at the appendix section of the Orthodox study Bible at the end. After the book of Revelation, you will find this article by um, bishop or Metropolitan. He was bishop, bishop at that time. Now he's Metropolitan Callistus Ware. He talks very nice words about uh, the Bible. I'll just quote only a few verses or a few lines of, uh, of what he said. And if you'd like to go and read the whole article, it's about four pages. Very, very short one, but it's very deep one. So what, what did he say about the Bible? So he said here, we believe that the scripture constitutes a coherent whole. The word coherent here like a unified um, whole, um, they are at once divinely inspired and humanly expressed. This, this demarcation is very important. So it is divinely inspired, but in the meantime, it is a human, humanly expressed. They bear authoritative witness to God's revelation of himself in creation, in incarnation of the word of Christ, and the whole history of salvation. And as such, they express the word of God in human language. See the emphasis always, the word of God in human language, inspired by God, but expressed by human language. We know, receive, and interpret scripture through the church and in the church. And this is a very important thing. So we receive the, the inspired word of God from the church, and we also interpret it in the church. By the way, you will find a lot that when we talk about scripture, we will talk about that we receive scripture. God is the one who gives us scripture through inspiration, and we get the, the, the scripture by we receive it. So this is, and always we can see the, uh, for example, the, um, the manuscripts, the, you find receptus a lot. The word receptus or received word of God. So we receive scripture and interpret it through church and in the church. Our approach to the Bible is one of obedience. That's what uh, Metropolitan Ware said. 
our approach to the Bible is one of obedience. We may distinguish, he says also, four key qualities that mark an orthodox reading of scripture. That what he said, four qualities to mark the orthodox way of reading and understanding the scripture. First, obedience. The Orthodox Church believes in divine inspiration of the Bible. Scripture is a letter from God where Christ himself is speaking. So when I read the Bible, I'm reading the letter from God and Christ through the Bible, through the scripture is talking to me. The second one is that we believe that the scripture is ecclesial. Ecclesial here means come from the church. We should receive and interpret scripture through the church and in the church. The same thing that he said before. Number three, Christ-centered. Scripture is all about Christ. Whether we talk about the Old Testament or the New Testament, Christ is the central figure in everything in everywhere in the scripture. So the scripture is about Christ. And the fourth thing is not like the church, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing it within the congregation, but also scripture talks to me. So there is a, a personal aspect of the scripture as well. So in obedience, ecclesial, Christ-centered, and personal. So that, that's what um, uh, Metropolitan Ware said. So let's start after this introduction with um, our topic. How did the Bible come about? We need tonight to, um, to discuss or study together how did we get it, how did we get the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. For the time's sake, I'm going tonight only to talk about the Old Testament, and then next, next week we talk about how did we get the, the New Testament. We talk about the sources, we talk about what we call canonicity, canonicity of the Bible, the, the Bible became canonical or the books became canonical means that the church approved that those books of the Bible should be sacred and should be in the Bible because there's a lot of literature around that time of history. So how did we make up our mind or how did the church made, make um, uh, uh, its mind about which books should be sacred or should be considered sacred and the others are not? And we talk also next time about translation. How did the Bible, well, how was the Bible translated from the original languages, the three languages which constitute the original um, languages of the Bible until it came up to us now in English and in many other uh, languages. I just start with you with some basic and fun facts about the Bible. Okay. The Bible is by far the best selling book of all time. It's the best seller of all time. However, no one can be absolutely sure exactly how many copies have been printed, sold, or distributed. In an attempt to find out how many exactly, the Bible Society attempted to calculate the number printed between 1816 and 1975. They came up with a figure about two and a half billion copies distributed. Not sold, but distributed or printed at that time. Another survey, they said that probably from the 1816 till 1992, they put it closer to six billion copies of the Bible distributed. So that will make us think, all right, what the other, what any other book close to that 
figure of the Bible. The works of Mao Zedong, the chairman of China, came second with 100, sorry, 80, 820 million copies. And guess what was the third one? Harry Potter. <laughs> exactly. So Harry Potter, but uh, Harry Potter in 2012 sold 400 million. But compare 400 million to 6 billion. At the, the, the difference is huge. But Harry Potter third, yes. Now we talk about... Sorry. Bible and languages. Do you know what, what were the original languages of the Bible? There are three languages. The Old Testament were written in which languages? Hebrew. And also some parts of the Old Testament were written in Aramaic. And then the, Old, the New Testament was written in Greek. So these are the three original languages of the Bible, mainly Hebrew in the Old Testament, some parts in Aramaic. And Aramaic is very close to Hebrew as well. And the Greek language is the language of the New Testament. Nowadays, we have in the world about 7,000 plus languages. Of those 7,000 plus, about 2,500 um, languages, they had parts, at least parts of the Bible translated into them. The entire Bible is available in 426 languages. And the New Testament alone is available in 1,115 languages. However, over 4,500 languages of the world, they're still waiting at, for at least a part of the Bible to be translated into them. So there is a lot of work still to come in order to translate the Bible into those uh, languages of the world. There's a lot of languages still uh, waiting to be uh, translated, the Bible waited, waiting to be translated into them. And the process of producing a translation um, is slow, difficult, and really daunting, and that's why um, um, translation is not easy. Nowadays, with the computer-aided translation, the, the process became um, a little bit easier, but not, uh, of course, not, um, not through Google Translate, of course. Let's say something different than that, something more uh, intense. How do we know about, um, about the Bible? Sorry, what do we, know? Do, do we know about the Bible? The Bible is made up of 66 separate, separate books. That's the canonical books that they found in every church, all churches. And it depends on which church you belong, belong to. There are extra books in, the, in, in, in those churches. It might be either 73 or 75, depending on how many of the deuterocanonical books this church uh, believe in having. The different books uh, of the Bible were written in different, um, by different people at different times. It was written over about 1,500 year span. It is believed that Moses wrote his um, Pentateuch, the, the, the first five books, books of the Bible, around 1400 BC, before Christ. And of course, the book of Revelation and the Gospel of St. John about 100 AD that makes the span of writing of the New and Old Testament together about 1,500 years. 
The first translation of the Bible from its original language happened um, in the third century BC, so 300 years or 200 and something years before the birth of Christ. This is the Septuagint, one of the most important translations of the Bible. The Septuagint was translated, the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek. We'll talk about it um, later. Um, it's also nice to understand and know that the Bible was translated into Coptic very early in history, about the second century AD, 100 something. The Bible was translated into um, Coptic. And if you like, if you, if you see this, if you can see it, this is an old Coptic manuscript of the Bible. This is from the second century. A Coptic, a Coptic manuscript, very old um, manuscript of the Bible. The Bible, when, what, when it was written, was written like a book, like, like any other book. No chapters, no verses. Up until, up until 1228, when a man by the name of Stephen Langton, he separated the Bible into uh, chapters. So before 1228, there was no chapters in the Bible. The Bible, it, it was like one scroll of the whole book or one book. Codex, he called it Codex. In 1488, a rabbi, um, um, a Jewish rabbi called Isaac Nathan divided the Old Testament into verses. And that was the first time in history the Bible had the verses, 1488, in, 15, in the 15th century. Uh, a man by the name of Robert Stephanus did the same for the New Testament in the 16th century, 1551. The first English translation of the Bible happened by John Wycliffe in 1382, and it was completed in 1384, and it was a handwritten copy. This is the, fir the very first English translation, a 1384. The first, the first printed Bible was by the one who invented press, John Gutenberg, and he, the first thing ever was printed was the Bible. And he uh, printed the, um, the Latin Bible that was translated by Saint Jerome, and Saint Jerome called that uh, version called the Vulgate. Okay, so that's, these are the, the fun facts of, uh, of the Bible. Let's go into the more important stuff or the more deep stuff about inspiration. We believe, as uh, Metropolitan Ware said, we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired but transmitted or, um, to us by humans. So divinely inspired and humanly expressed. What does that mean? Inspired by God. If we read in the Bible, the Bible says to us that it is inspired by God. I will, I'll just quote two uh, uh, places in the Bible that talks, uh, talk about inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3.16, St. Paul says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So St. Paul is saying to me that the, the Bible is divinely inspired. Also, St. Peter said a similar thing. He said, no prophecy of scripture 
is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So both Peter and Paul tell me here that the Bible was inspired. And when he talk about scripture here, he doesn't mean the New Testament, he talks about the whole Bible. Because even when Saint Paul wrote his epistles, still they were relying upon the Old Testament. What, what is the definition of inspiration? What, how, what, what do I mean when I say the Bible is divinely inspired? The Moody Handbook of Theology, a man by the name of Paul N. said this, the act, what is inspiration? It is the act of the Holy Spirit in which he superintended the writers of scripture so that while writing according to their own style and personalities, they produce God's word. You will find it very um, obvious in a book like the book of Amos. If you read the book of Amos, you will find Amos, probably the first five chapters, every paragraph, it says, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. When you, when you look at the book of Amos, as if Amos was writing this book, but he says, yes, I'm writing this book, but this is not my words, the words of God. So thus says the word, if you look, I would like you to go back and, and look at Amos, it's, it's amazing. Because there's a lot of prophets, prophets or the prophetic books have the word thus says the Lord, but not as frequent as Amos said it. So they produce at the end God's word, written, authoritative, and free from error in the original writing. This is the, um, the uh, definition of uh, inspiration. What is the implication or what are the implications of inspiration? When I say, okay, it is inspired by God, what, what does that mean? What, what are the implications of that? First thing, it's a human book produced by human beings, produced by writing. A human being wrote it on paper and everything. It didn't come from heaven. I, the, the, the writer of any book wasn't sitting down and all of a sudden the book came to him. It was like, or like for example, the Muslims said that about the... The, the, the inspiration came to the Prophet Muhammad and he told them about that and he, he read after that. It's not like that. In, in Christianity, it's a bit different. So the Bible is a human book. Authors used their own language, the, their own writing methods, their own style of writings and literary forms of writing. So, uh, and, and that's why when you find, although the Bible has one integrated message throughout the whole Bible, you find even the style of writing is different. So for example, if you read Isaiah in the original um, language, you will find the eloquence of Isaiah is completely different from someone like Amos. And when you go back, you find Isaiah was very, very well um, uh, uh, learned um, human being, whereas uh, Amos was a sycamore fig tree uh, planter, or he, he was a farmer. So he didn't have enough, um, say, learning. But God used Amos and also used Isaiah. But the difference in style is very, very obvious. But that doesn't mean that he, Isaiah, produced God's word and Amos didn't. Now they both, but everyone has his own style that actually um, uh, involved, uh, was involved in his writing. The authors wrote 
to an audience in a specific historical context of a specific purpose. And that's very important because when, we, when you interpret the Bible, you need to know the, what we call the historical context. When the Lord Jesus Christ, for example, said these words, in what context he did, he, did he say it? What was the culture at that time? What was the situation that he said it? So knowing the context, the histor historical context is very important. The third thing, the Bible is influenced by the culture in which the author wrote. And that's why also studying the culture is very important. When you read and, um, and, and, and study interpretation of the Bible, it's very important to, re to read also about the culture. Why, for example, when, um, um, when, you, when we talk about the ten virgins, why, what, what was the, the normal um, wedding, the Jewish wedding at that time, so that the, these two, ten virgins, where, why these ten virgins were waiting for the bridegroom to come? Because there's something to, to do with the culture. Why, when the, um, the miracle of um, changing the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the water into wine, also this is cultural thing also to the weddings and so on. So knowing the culture of the time is very, very important. Sorry, I forgot that. <laughs> Let's carry that out. Okay, so three things. Authors used their own language, writing styles. Authors wrote an, to an audience that they have specific historical context and the Bible is influenced by the culture of people. So that's the first one. The Bible is a human book. But in the meantime, it's not merely a human book. The Bible also is, is a divine book. It's the message from God. So having said that, it's, uh, the Bible is a divine book. So number one, the Bible is inerrant, devoid of any errors or mistakes. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible has unity. The Bible has unity. We have 66 books, 40 authors, but the message of the Bible is one. When you read anywhere in the Bible, as, as uh, Metropolitan Ware said, he said it's a coherent whole. So whatever you read, you read Genesis, you won't find any place in the Bible that contradicts Genesis. You won't find um, a, a book in the New Testament um, says something that contradicts any book in the, in the New Testament. Never. You can't find that. So the, the, the coherence of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible and the unity of the Bible is, is there. It has a consistent message and can be compared with itself for proper interpretation. Sometimes people says, scripture interprets scripture. So for example, if you'd like to know the meaning of a certain passage of the Bible, one of the ways to um, know this meaning is to compare it to a different scripture somewhere else. So scripture interpret scripture. The Bible has an element of mystery. Some passages may be hard to understand. And that's what we're going to do uh, at the end. That the, due to the mystery of the Bible, we can also dig a little bit deeper in order to get into those mysterious passages. The Bible has an interpretation to it that is intended by God. There is, every passage has an interpretation. 
and our role as believers in order to find out what does God want from us from this part of scripture. So this is the example of Amos that I told you about that humanly expressed but it's a divinely um, inspired. Thus says the Lord, one of them is in chapter 5 verse 4, thus, uh, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. If you find it, I mean, more than six chapters with different thus says the Lord. Okay, so far so good. Okay, where did the Christian Bible come from? Also, we concentrate upon the Old Testament tonight. How was the Old Testament written? We said that there were a number of authors who wrote the books over a span of time. So the same thing applied to the Old Testament. A number of authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, they produced what we call the autograph. You can see here, this is the autograph. The autograph means that the, Bible, the, the, the first copy of the book of the Bible. Usually we don't have this autograph, but we have, we have copies of that. And then after that, on clay or skin or papyrus or whatever the means uh, was in order to copy the, the, the scripture, these scriptures been recopied and copied until, until it came to us. Normally what happens when you copy, copy from a manuscript? What happens with, the, um, with the, the scribes? They make mistakes, right? That's, that's normal. I mean, in, in, go and, and try it. If you get a book and you just hand, uh, hand copy those, those books, you make mistakes. When we find this mistake can be transferred into another copy and another copy and so on. And that what was one of the things that the Bible has been um, uh, criticized over the, the, the ages, over the years, until something big happened in 1947, and that proven that the Bible is, that there was virtually devoid of any mistake, and the scribes that they actually um, copied the Bible were very, very careful not to make mistakes, and also I think this is a divine thing. We'll talk about it uh, uh, in, in a minute. So the Bible was copied in on clay. The, the first media that the, the Bible was copied in was actually clay. And they engrave on the clay and leave it until it dries up. And then after that, they transfer it. After that, when they discovered the papyrus, they used papyrus. And the papyrus comes from trees that grow uh, uh, on the banks of the Nile in Africa, not only in Egypt, but also in Africa. And this papyrus also found in Palestine. They used to take this papyrus and cut it and made paper out of it. Eventually, the Bible was recorded in forms of book, books, and even those books were made of papyrus as well, papyrus leaves. And sometimes after that, later, they used parchment, like a skin of animals. And they, instead of doing it as a scroll, Remember when the Lord Jesus was um, invited to read and he, uh, in, in the temple, in the um, synagogue, he took a scroll and started to read from. Later on, instead of scrolls, they did something like books and they call it codex. Codex means book, a book in uh, Latin. And that's why also when you find the manuscripts of the New Testament, they call it codex. Codex means book. 
They were still handwritten though, and were often decorated with intricate colors. You see here, this is uh, from uh, a manuscript. The, the old scribes, they had plen plenty of time, so they used to just decorate their, um, their manuscripts and put um, big um, letters like that, so it took time. It, it, it used to take um, a long time to produce one manuscript. So manuscript, um, handwritten, takes a long time. So in order to do a new copy, you, you, it, it's very hard to do it. So you, you wait until this copy gets ruined, ruined, and then after that, you do that. that. These are the papyrus trees, the wild papyrus that used for writing. This is how they cut it and they put it together. They, uh, they remove the outer part of it, the green part, and they put it together and they uh, press it and make it as papers. And they write on it with these things. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very long process to produce one manuscript. And these are the scribes, the heroes of the, the preserved the, uh, the Bible, those uh, scribes. When it comes to the Old Testament, the most recent copy in our um, uh, position now, something called the Masoretic text. When you find in literature the Masoretic text, it's always called empty. When you find empty, this is the Masoretic text. And the Masoretic text, this is the most recent authoritative copy of the Old Testament, which was produced in the year 1000 AD, so in the 10th century after Christ. So if we know that Moses wrote um, the Pentateuch in 1400 BC, and Malachi 400 BC, and then this Masoretic text was produced about 1400 after Malachi, 1400 years after Malachi. When we think about it, what happens between Malachi and Christ? Between Malachi, the last um, prophet in the Old Testament, and the Lord Jesus Christ is about 400 years. Those 400 years are called the silent years. There was no prophecy. But during those 400 years between Malachi and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they, the, the books that we call the deuterocanonical books were written. The, the book of 1st um, uh, uh, Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, Judith, and th those books were written during this time, we call it the intertestamental period, or the period between the two testaments. I would like to, to talk to you briefly about this Masoretic text. Because the Masoretic text is a fascinating text, and it's the one that actually the Jews are using it till now, and they, they um, uh, use it in order to compare any other text they have, and also that happened when, when this discovery that I'm going to tell you about, when it was discovered, it proven that these Masoretic texts were very accurate. Do you know that Hebrew doesn't have vowels? Do you know that? It's only consonants. So the Hebrew language doesn't have vowel. And do you need vowels to pronounce or not? Of course you do. So if, if you have a language that doesn't have vowels, by the way, Arabic doesn't have many vowels. The Arabic language doesn't have many vowels. What, in order to, um, to pronounce the Arabic, what, what you rely upon? 
Tashkil, which is the diacritian marks. So you, 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 you rely upon them. Same thing for Hebrew. If you are a native Arabic um, reader, do you rely upon those marks all the time to read, or you can read without them? You can read without them. How? Because you know the words and you know the context. So the newspaper, the Arabic newspapers, they don't have those tashkil. They don't have the fatha and the kasra. You don't, you don't know. You don't have them. So how can you read them? Because you know the context. Right? Sorry? Yeah, exactly right. That's, that's why we have fun in the Passion Week um, listening to people reading Arabic because there is no the Christian marks and um, we, we, we read all these uh, wrongly pronounced words. So the, the, the Hebrew doesn't have vowels. That doesn't have vowels. So in order for the generation to understand the scripture, those people that are called the Masoretes, the Masoretes, they're actually scholars, came about and took the text, the Hebrew text of the Bible and started to do vowels by putting signs underneath the, the, the letters. If you know Arabic, Arabic is always above the letter. Uh, also, sometimes below, yeah, but it's mainly above. It's only one, one, one thing. Uh, um, the accent, the French accent is always above. Uh, you know, the Jenkim in, in, in Coptic also always above. They did it, did it all underneath the letters. I'll give you an example of that. This is, imagine that English doesn't have vowels. Okay? So I've got LST. Can you read this one? If I don't give you the context, are you able to read this? No. So LST can be what? Can be last. Can be lost, can be least, can be lost, right? So what, what will determine the, which word is which? The context, all right? So those people, if, if, you, if you read that in English, it's easy. So they did something very similar in order to determine how to pronounce those words in Hebrew. I'll give you an example and I'm, yeah, I do apologize about Hebrew. It's not a Hebrew, it is a he, it's not a Hebrew uh, uh, lesson, but I would just, I would simplify it. Okay, can you read that one? This is the first one, by the way, Hebrew is like Arabic from right to left, okay? So this is he, a Hebrew word. The first one is A, it's Aleph, and then the second one, this is the Lamed, this is the L, and then the third one is the hey, this is H, and then the small one like the apostrophe is called Yud, and this is I, and the last one like the Arabic meme, it's me. Alright? So can you read this? Alhim, Al right? Okay, Alhim, what's Alhim? Don't know. Has no meaning. It's actually the name of God. The name of God is Elohim. Elohim. How can I know? that this one can, can be pronounced Elohim. Here came the Masoretes. The Masoretes put those marks underneath the words. So this is A, A with, with, um, with, the, with the long A, and then the second one with the dot uh, above it, the Lamed with the dot, this is low, and then the H with the dot underneath it is He, and then the Yod and M, just silent. So Elohim. 
So they do, did that. This is just an example. So those Masoretes did that, how to pronounce the words, and in the meantime, they put so also some um, uh, um, explanation on the margins of the manuscripts in order to explain to people the different words and how to pronounce it and how, pronounce it and how also to understand it. So they did a marvelous job that happened in the 10th century AD. And up until now, this Masoretic text is the best text when it comes to the Old Testament. So how the books of the Old Testament came about, or how those books were gathered together, we don't know exactly what happened, but we have a number of conjectures, some number of possibilities. But by the time of Jesus, we had two important collections of the Old Testament. The first one was, was the Hebrew Old Testament, and the second one was the Septuagint. You know what the Septuagint, we said it. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, what was the Septuagint? I've got five minutes to finish. What was the Septuagint? At that time, it, it happened about 250 BC, before Christ. At that time, there was the Greek Empire, and the culture was all Greek. So if you'd like, it's like the English of, of today. So if you'd like to be um, um, consistent, having jobs and have um, uh, good in literature, everything, you have to know the Greek language. Everything in, in, in Greek. It's, it's called the lingua franca, the, frank, the, the common language of the time. Exactly the same as we have English now. If you know English, all the doors open for you. If you don't know English, um, you, you, you will suffer. It's the, 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 the language of the internet, the language of the technology, the language of everything. It's a, at the same time, at the time, it, it was the same with the Greek. Everything, the culture is Greek. Too many Jews left Palestine and went to Egypt and North Africa and Europe, everywhere. So they had to learn Greek in order to survive. And by time, they, they lost the Hebrew language. So they had to be a translation of the Bible, their Bible, into Greek in order for those people to worship. So the Ptolemies who were in Egypt at that time, they actually assigned a task to 70 scholars, Greek, um, uh, Hebrew scholars, and they told them, some people say 70, some people said 72, in order to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And they produced this Septuagint. The word Septuagint means 70 in, in Greek. And that's why it was called that, the, the translation that was made um, by the 70 scholars. It was done in Alexandria, Egypt, about 250 uh, BC. The only, the main difference, there's a, a, a number of differences between the Septuagint and the Hebrew Old Testament. One of the major differences is the Deuterocanonical books. The Septuagint had the Deuterocanonical books in it, included in it, whereas the um, Hebrew one didn't. And that was why now we have a problem in some churches between uh, those who accept the Deuterocanonical books and those who don't because of that, because it was only included in the Septuagint, it wasn't included in the normal uh, Hebrew Old Testament. Talk about it next time. So with those 
long years of transmission of the Old Testament text in manuscripts, one would expect is going to be a lot of transmission error. Is that right? This is the normal practice. I'm a scribe, I'm, I'm, I'm writing from a handwritten manuscript. I can make mistakes. The scribe that comes and, and uses my uh, copy will make mistakes. Those mistakes will transmit and so on. Especially Muslims, they started to criticize the Bible because they said, because of your manuscripts, your Bible has changed a lot. And even also the people who, if you heard about what we call the biblical criticism, there's something called higher criticism. They criticize the, the writing and the sources of, of the Bible. They said the same thing. They said because of the, the manuscript movement and the transmission of those Bibles, that the Bible, the original one, has changed. Until something really, really big happened very recently in 1947. So how many years ago? About 67 years ago? Yeah. When we discovered what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. When we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, everything changed. The Dead Sea Scrolls um, were discovered in 1947, 1948, and they continue to discover those in caves around the Dead Sea in Palestine for a number of years. And it happened by absolute chance. What happened? A shepherd boy was looking for his lost sheep, and he went and left the, the place that he was uh, minding his sheep, uh, sheep in, and he searched everywhere, couldn't find them. And he found some of those caves around, and he started to enter into one of those caves. And to his surprise, he found containers, containers like this, inside the caves. And the, inside the containers, he found, or he, he, he discovered, that there's a lot of scrolls inside. Scrolls, complete scrolls, like the book of Isaiah, for example, was complete, and a lot, a lot of fragments papyrus fragments. They said about 1,900 of those inside those uh, 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 containers of fragments, small fragments. If you look at uh, the project itself, there's very small fragments like, um, as, um, like the, the hand size. And there are um, complete books. The, the book of Isaiah, one of the um, uh, of the of the book the the uh, copies of the book of Isaiah uh, is is very long and it's on one scroll. Imagine the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. Of course, there was no chapters at that time, and it's in on written on one uh, scroll. Of course, that that was one of the most important discoveries of the time. So these these. Um, texts. They are biblical texts that predated the Christian era, about 200 before Christ. A fascinating discovery, as you would expect, a lot of differences. Amazing results, even scribal, error, scribal errors were only very few. When they uh, examined those manuscripts with the Masoretic text that happened to be 1000 AD, and even with the, the, the manuscripts that they were found inside those jars and inside those caves, they were almost identical. 
And the errors that happened throughout all these years by the scribes were only a few. And the good thing is, the errors, that they, the, the, the spelling mistakes that happened there did not change any doctrine. So it's not, for example, it's a big word here and it's a completely different word there. Word there. It's complete, um, 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 very, very small errors that did not change the, um, the, the doctrine at all. So this, this um, big discovery, 1900 scroll fragments, contained the entire Old Testament except the Book of Esther. They couldn't find the Book of Esther in any of those fragments. That doesn't mean the Book of Esther is not canonical, but it happened to not to be found in this collection. They are virtually identical to what we read today. They found it identical to the Masoretic text that was done 1000 AD. Normally scribes make errors and those errors get transmitted through copied uh, work, but those fragments showed how um, careful those biblical manuscripts were copied throughout the years. Um, the, there were two manuscripts of the book of Isaiah dated 200 BC. Imagine that 200 before uh, Christ, 200 years before Christ. This collection contained the following, contained 30 copies of the book of Psalms, 19 copies of Isaiah, 25 copy, copies of the book of Deuteronomy. When those copies were examined side by side, they were almost identical. Occasional spelling errors, as I said, are not major, and it gave the opportunity to compare about 1,200 years of scribal transmission, bearing in mind that these people did not have the technology that we have now. They didn't have any spell checker or anything like that, but yet the error was, were actually very, very, very few. So that we finish um, tonight. Next week, we're going to uh, talk about the New Testament. So how we got the New Testament? How do we know that the Gospel of Matthew, for example, was written by Matthew? and the Gospel of Luke was, was written by Luke. How do we know that? How did we come uh, about knowing uh, the authorship? Why there were only four Gospels? If you know that there are, there are many Gospels, they are not included in the canon of the church. You know, you, he you hear about a Gospel of um, uh, Thomas, a Gospel of Judas, a Gospel of Infancy, Gospel of James. There's a lot of Gospels. But why the church determined only those four Gospels, that what we know, we will know next week. Uh, we will talk also about the canon of Scripture, how the, the church determined which book should be sacred and which, which books are not. And also we'll talk about the English translation. How did the Bible, uh, how was the Bible translated into English? And I will tell you what, what translation is best, which one to use. I will, I'll give you some hints about that. Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry that it took long, but uh, any question, I'm happy to. Thank you. Any question, unless you had enough? <laughs> yes, please. How did the, the rendition that was translated from Hebrew have, in, have additional content? So the Greek translation, if you're translating something, how is it? Yeah, thank you. This is a very good question. Those books actually were written in Greek. So they, they were originally written in Greek. 
And these, these books were not written in Palestine. Most of them were written in Alexandria, Egypt. So they found them there. So they included in the translation that they made. That's why the Hebrew people did not accept them because they were actually very uh, meticulous about accepting which book in, into their sacred uh, collection. They said, okay, those books were not written in Palestine, were not written in Hebrew or Aramaic, we're not gonna include them. But the, the people who translated the, the, um, the Hebrew into Greek, they said, okay, those, those books have wisdom and those books uh, are sacred, so um, we're going to include them. And that's why the Christian church was divided after that. Some people followed the, um, the Jewish uh, 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 reasoning and they said, okay, it wasn't in Hebrew, it wasn't in Palestine, we're not going to accept them. And some people said, why? They have wisdom, they are apparently divine, so why, why we don't include them? That's why. And until now, they don't accept them. They're Jews. I mean, yes, please. So those sea scrolls, what? How did they end up where they were? Now we don't know, but I mean, most probably there is a sect of the, of, of the Jews called the Essenes. Those Essenes like like the um, like the uh, the uh, the monks. So they are the people who live in uh, monastic life. Those Essenes took off from Palestine, went to this area, and they they um, started to um, live there in an ascetic life. And one of the tasks that they used to do is actually to uh, copy scripture. And they left it there, and that was left because the area, if you go there, the area is very close to Jericho. If any one of you went to, um, to Palestine, to Jerusalem and uh, the surrounding area, this area very close to Jericho. Jericho is known to be the lowest point under the sea on earth. So, and very close, very close to the Dead Sea. And this area is very dry. So because it's very dry and um, the sun is always there and those caves are high up, so this, this um, um, collection was preserved. But yes, it was most probably done by the Essenes. St. John the Baptist was the Essenes. Yes, he was one of the Essenes, exactly right. St. John the Baptist was one of the Essenes. Okay. Any other question? Thank you very much, everyone.